Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. Today we have a conversation with DeRay McKesson. He's the young educator and activist who came to national prominence after the shooting death of Michael Brown in Ferguson. He has remained active in the cause of social justice ever since. Now he's written a thoughtful book to explain the whys and wherefores of his activism. It's titled, On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope. McKesson now makes Baltimore his home, but his reach remains national. Ray McKesson joins me in studio. It's great to see you again. It's so good to see you, too. Thank you for coming in. In a sense, it's kind of a welcome home, although it's not your home. Yeah, yeah, it does. You know, people forget that we were in the street in the initial wave of the protests in Ferguson for 400 days. You know, they look back on it and think about it as like a long weekend. And we're like, no, this is a long time. Um, So I'm always reminded and being back, you know, one of the beauties about the the protest was that there was like this incredible tunnel vision, you know, like we were just so focused on what was at hand because Mm -hmm. as you know, the police killed Mike Brown, but nine people got killed after Mike Brown in in the region. Um, And it wasn't until sort of I went back home that I realized that the world had been watching everything that we were doing, but I missed that tunnel vision. Well, and when you went back home, you were faced with uh, this kind of a situation again. Yep. Freddie Gray got killed. It was, and you know, that was one of the other things that, you know, a lot of people in the beginning thought that there was a problem in Ferguson. They didn't think there was a problem in America. Mm-hmm. And now we realize, like, you, especially with the proliferation of the videos, now people see, even with the last video of uh, the Botham Jean young man who got killed in his own apartment, right? Mm-hmm. Like, now people see that there's a real issue here. And I've spent four years trying to think about, like, what are the solutions and what are the things we don't know? Yeah. Well, it's been four years, obviously, since the Michael Brown shooting. And when you run down the list of things that have happened since then, you have to conclude, I think, that we really haven't come very far in this whole area of civil rights and social justice. I think that we have come far in the awareness. You know, you Mm. think about four years ago, there were reporters weren't really challenging the police. You know, like it was a hard place. It was like the protesters of the people being like, this isn't right. This isn't fair. But you think of the media were not, they weren't asking the tough questions. They weren't. And that there's like a sea change now. Like that is just very different. You think about Wesley Bell winning. You think about the, um, the, St. Louis City attorney, right? Like you think about these people that are actually advocates for justice publicly in a way that just didn't exist four years mm-hmm. ago here or other places around the country. So I think that is a win. In terms of the numbers, the the problem is still the same, right? That like the a third of all the people killed by a stranger in this country is actually killed by a police officer. We know mm-hmm. that one in 11 gun homicides in California is committed by an officer. So the outcomes are still not good. You, uh, in your book, you spend quite a bit of time talking about uh, police and transparency and accountability. And I was really stunned by some of the things that you and, and, and your friends have come up with with regard to uh, what we little know and don't know about police activity over the last years. There's so many things. So I think about even some of the rules. So like in California, there's a law that says that any investigation of an officer that lasts more than a year can never result in discipline regardless of the outcome. And you're like, that's just not fair. You know, Maryland has this law that says that you can file an anonymous complaint of an off- against an officer for everything except brutality. And you're like, what? Like that? <laughs> like who even thought that in Cleveland they destroy the police officer disciplinary records every two years? You're like, mm-hmm. that doesn't make a lot of sense, right? Mm-hmm. So we spent a lot of time trying to peel back, like what were the layers? Like what were the things that we didn't know about the police and why they're not held accountable? Because four years ago when we were in the street, when I was in the street, I remember thinking it was like a bad prosecutor and it was like a sort of a mayor that didn't care and those sort of things. And all those things can be true. But what we realize is that you can have a great prosecutor. You can have a mayor that cares. You can have a city council that cares. But when the rules and the laws are just swayed in their favor, it doesn't really matter. 
One of the things that uh, has struck me then and since about the Ferguson situation is that a lot of people, white people, were surprised by what was unearthed through all of that, you know, with regard to the cash bonds and that sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, and yet uh, – and, and surprised that, that the community was as restive as it is. And yet it came as no surprise to the people who have been living with this for a long, long time. And that's what you see all across the country is that, you know, I think about my hometown of Baltimore is that people have been saying for a long time that the police were planting guns on people and da da da. And what you found was the city council members were like, well, we just didn't trust drug dealers, right? Mm-hmm. Like we didn't. And then the FBI comes in, indicts an entire division of the police department, and people mm-hmm. were like, we have been telling you this our whole lives. You know, even the, the DOJ report about the Ferguson Police Department, it's like they're sick and dogs on people. It's like, mm-hmm. Clearly, somebody said that that had happened, but they didn't believe it until it had been put into a report. But, you know, there are people listening to this program right now who are saying, well, the police, are, they, they, they too are under siege. They're outgunned on the streets in many cases, not during the, the, the Ferguson uh, uh, episode that we're talking about, but day to day and that they are on guard and that they are react, reacting probably in a very l- logical way. You know, what's interesting about the St. Louis region is that the St. Louis region has the single highest rate of police violence in the country. So when we even think about like the protests beginning here and a movement being born in St. Louis, it actually makes a lot of sense because more people here have proximity to police violence than any other region in the country. So that's one. The second is that when you look at the data around 911 calls, it's like something like 10% of 911 calls are actually traumatic events that require the officers to potentially even use force. The majority are like broke down cars, missing kids, those sort of things. So this idea that every time an officer goes outside is some like wild encounter, like that's not true. And the third is that, you know, I know that there will always be rules. People will break the rules and there should be consequences. The question becomes what in what circumstance should death be the consequence, mm-hmm. right? And like I would say to you, like I say to any officer, is that like, when should the police kill somebody you love, you know? Like I've been on panels with police officers and they're like, DeRay, are you saying the police should never kill somebody? I'm like, well, I don't know, when should the police kill your child? Like tell me, your kid's going to make a mistake and your kid's probably going to make a mistake that puts somebody else at a disadvantage. Mm-hmm. And tell me the mistake that your kid can make that would be okay for an officer to put a bullet in their head. And every time I ask the question, police are like, I don't know. It's like, well, I don't know either, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How many police officers do you talk to and have you been talking to over the course of uh, the last four years? So I've talked to a lot of officers at all levels. I think about our meetings with President Obama. You know, the last meeting we had President Obama was with police chiefs from mm-hmm. some of the largest police departments in the country. And we were all in the same space. Uh, and that meeting was actually more more. It was like an off the record meeting. So the police chiefs could just sort of say we tried a lot of things. And they didn't work, which mm-hmm. they never say publicly. And I've been in a lot of like workforce, like, you know, workforce meetings or task meetings Mm -hmm. with them. You know, there are a lot of police chiefs who actually get it, who like privately are like, we get it, Mm -hmm. system's broken, da, da, da. But even them, I think about one police chief in a major police department. He was like, DeRay, I'm with you. I get it. He's like, I can't fire police officers. though. He's like, the rules don't actually allow me as a chief to let people go. He's like, there's this crazy process that almost means that nobody is ever held accountable. So he's like. I can change the rules a little bit, but like I can't change all of these rules. And you're like, I get it, right? So we've mm-hmm. actually been able to partner behind the scenes with some of the police chiefs. It, the harder people in the police departments are like the next layer. Mm-hmm. Those like lifers are going to survive. They're going to survive every mayor. They're going to survive every police chief. Those are the people that are like keeping the status quo, the status quo inside. Well, I have in my notes here on page 47 of your book, you say, and you just use the expression, policing is broken. How do you fix it? Yeah, you know, I want us to start thinking about, like, 
if we if community if we want communities to be safe, what's the way to make them safe? And it's not clear that policing is like the best way to do that. So you think about for two thousand years we literally slit people's wrists, let them bleed out, and we call that healthcare. Mm-hmm. Like that was like the most popular medical procedure we did in the country, or like that we did in the world actually was bloodletting, where we like drain people's blood and we're like Or use leeches. Or use leeches, right? And we're like, wow, their blood pressure went down. And you're like, Yeah, because they don't have any blood, right? In uh, and then people looked up and we're like, that actually isn't healthcare, right? Like, that's just not a good solution to people being ill. And that's sort of where we are with policing is that, like, you think about, again, I'll go back to Baltimore. We spend half a billion dollars. The clearance rate for crimes is about 20%. A whole division of the police department just got indicted by the FBI. Mm-hmm. And the DOJ came down and said, like, you guys are having a million civil rights violations. Is that that actually isn't making people safe. That, like, it, it might make people feel safe. But we could take the majority of that money and invest it in some of the prevention work. Like, you know, you think about all the crimes of poverty, like theft, those sort of things. We could actually end poverty. Like, that's not like a we can do that. You know, like there's money, there's resources. We could take that money from police. So I'm interested in how do we start to think about shifting from needing people with guns to respond to every conflict and think about getting on the front end so we don't have to do that in the beginning. You you think about Trump. Trump just gave $700 billion to the military. Mm. We could. T- it would only take $125 billion to take every single person out of poverty. Like, it's never a matter of are there resources. It's always a matter of will we commit them. Yeah. You, uh, very early on in your book, you differentiate between two words that I think are, are key to our conversation and many conversations, and that is faith and hope. How do you differentiate the two, and where are we now with regard to uh, these two words? Yeah, you know, when King says the, the the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice, that is a statement about faith. It's a belief in the things unseen, right? When we think about uh, hope, we say that the moral arc bends because people bend it. And hope is about possibility. And, and I always think about hope as a belief that our tomorrows can be better than our today's. And I think about all the people in the street, all the people running for office. All of that is hope work. Like, it's people engaged mm-hmm. in this idea that we can make the world a better place. And I think about when I was in the street and I was one of many people in the street here in St. Louis City and Ferguson, we were out there because we knew that like this wasn't the best way that the system could be. We knew it wasn't the best way here, and we knew it wasn't the best way anywhere across the country. So I, I always think about this work as hope work, that like that's why we do it. Now, uh, as I understand it, faith is, is looking ahead and, and being almost certain that something will happen. Hope is that it, it can happen. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That's how I think about it, that like Hope is like this sense of deep possibility. So we're still at the hope stage. We haven't reached the faith stage. Yeah, my faith is shaky sometimes because we've had some losses. Or you even think about this recent case uh, where the young black man was in his apartment, the officer saying that she like – she randomly parked on the wrong floor, entered, gave a verbal command. It's like she shoots him dead. It's like we know that 99% of officers don't get convicted, who mm-hmm. in like almost none get charged. But and 90, these are real figures, too. You're not just throwing no, I'm not these just making these up. 99% don't get convicted. So my hope here is really like I'm nervous, right? Because it seems very clear to me that this was manslaughter at the very least. But like the data doesn't suggest that she's going to be held accountable in any way. And it's these sort of things that shake my faith, right, that shake my belief that, like, justice is just going to roll in. I'm more so uh, 
right now trying to double down on like what are the structures and like what are the things that we can change what are the laws what are the policies what are the practices that we can move so we made the first ever database on police um, we made the first database on police union contracts in the country we made the first database on use of force policies in the country we have the most comprehensive database on police on this the data around police violence because mm-hmm. here's the wild thing is that if you get killed in this country by an officer and a newspaper doesn't report on it then you are not in the data set because the government doesn't collect mm-hmm. the data so there have been whole years where like Florida has reported zero killings by police and you're like we know you killed them right like there's a body we know that that's not true so activists have actually built these incredible databases fatal encounters and kill by police were the first to try and collect the data and what we did is we took all of the data that was out there put it in one place and filled in all the holes Mm -hmm. so it is cool because now we can push back around some of this stuff people will say things like uh there's a relationship between community violence and police violence. They're like, well, the neighborhood is just so violent mm-hmm. that, of course, the police have to be there. And because there's so many police there, of course they do that. And, and the data actually doesn't show that. The data shows that there's some places where there are high rates of community violence and very, very low rates of police violence and, and vice versa. So that's been interesting. There's some places where uh, the police literally have only ever killed a black person uh, in any of the data that we have, you know. So it's been interesting to look at the data ourselves and see what it says. Yeah. We have to take a break. We'll do that now. We're talking with Duray McKesson, uh, the activist who, who made quite a name for himself during the uh, Ferguson situation here back in 2014. And he's been active ever since. And he's written a book. And the book is titled On the Other Side of Freedom, The Case for Hope. He's going to be appearing tonight at 7 o'clock, and I've got the note right here, DeRay. Where is that going to be? The Union Avenue, Christian Church, 7 o'clock tonight. Back to continue the conversation. We'd like you to be a part of it in the time that we have left. Give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or if you would prefer to send a tweet, do so at STL on air. Back in a moment, this is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio 90.7 KWMU. Thank you for listening to this St. Louis on the Air podcast supported by University College at Washington University with undergraduate and graduate programs part-time evening and online. University College at Washington University offering world-class education within reach. And welcome back. We'll be continuing our conversation with DeRay McKesson in just a moment. But first, here are some of the stories our St. Louis Public Radio newsroom is following today. The Boys and Girls Clubs of Greater St. Louis broke ground this morning on a new teen center in Ferguson. The $12 million facility will be located on West Florissant Avenue, less than half a mile from the spot where Michael Brown was shot and killed. The second season of St. Louis and Cammie Thomas's mini-documentary series, Smoke City, begins September 27th. The project looks at the relationships residents have with each other and the city following the unrest in Ferguson four years ago. And we're taking a look at construction on the Poplar Street Bridge, happening at the same time the MLK Bridge is shut down and how it's affecting commutes between Illinois and Missouri. Join St. Louis Public Radio this afternoon for local and regional news and throughout the day on our website at stlpublicradio.org. Now back to our conversation with uh, DeRay. 
Uh, well, $12 million teen center in Ferguson, that's a, a step forward, I would think. That's got to be good news. Yeah, so programs are important because we know programs create space for people to grow and they help mitigate some of the negative effects of, of poverty and other ills. Uh, we also know that we can't let the system off the hook, right? That like, So one of the reasons why we need so many programs is because the system failed people in the first place. Mm-hmm. Like poverty, we allow poverty to happen. We allow some of these things to happen. You know, I even think too about a recent report that just came out there's an event tonight um, here in St. Louis about closing the workhouse and it's mm-hmm. called if you go to close the workhouse if you just google that you'll see the report but they talk about like you know the conditions at the workhouse you remember the heat wave that came at the workhouse here in Absolutely. St. Louis and and you know inmates are suing the city and being really clear about like you know we could so many of the people it's like 90% of the people in the workhouse are there pre-trial like we shouldn't be locking people up because they're poor, you know, like we can reinvest that money in something else. So the teen center is a good thing. Uh, and we have so many other things that we need to fight. We're going to be talking tomorrow on this program with the circuit attorney in St. Louis, Kim Gardner. And that's uh, among the things that we want to talk yes. about. My, my son was a public defender in the city for seven years. Oh, and wow. the stories he tells about uh, about the workhouse and the treatment, some of these young people in particular uh, are really quite stunning. And uh, anyway, we'll have a chance to uh, to talk with her about that. Going back to what we were talking about just before the break, we have an email here from a listener saying, I just don't believe there is a police on black violence killing problem in St. Louis or the U.S. The crime data across races just doesn't prove that is the case whatsoever. More policing is needed and desired in poor neighborhoods, not less. So if you go to mappingpoliceviolence.org, you can see the data. So this isn't really something you get to agree with or disagree with. The police actually are killing uh, people in the St. Louis region at a higher rate than any other place in the country, and it falls largely around race lines. Um, and what we find is that the police, the, the presence of police isn't necessarily making communities safer. It makes people, it might make people feel safe, but we can, especially when you think about crimes of poverty, is that we can actually address poverty, and that's not a police thing. We mm-hmm. can address uh, some of these other ills, and that's not police. We can create access and opportunity for people, and that's not, policing doesn't actually do that. Uh, so so I, I would challenge that notion because the data doesn't support that. And again, to incarcerate people, we the data actually shows that incarceration doesn't lead to great outcomes. Like, it's not like this thing that saves people. Uh, It is a thing that makes people sometimes feel safe. And like the feeling of safety is not actually the presence of safety. One of the things I have to say, however, is that we have to be a little bit careful, I think, of trying to give the impression that all cops are bad or that all policing is bad. There are certainly incidents you can point to, and you're very, very good at doing that. But there are some out there that are working very, very hard to, uh, to, to make things better. Yeah, so this is not a matter of individual people. In the same way that we were like slitting people's wrists and letting, or like putting leeches on people mm-hmm. and like draining the blood, I'm sure there were good people who were slitting people's wrists and calling it healthcare, right? Mm-hmm. There were good people who were like putting leeches all over your body and draining your blood. That still doesn't make the practice a right practice, mm-hmm. right? So when we think about policing, there are probably good people in those systems. The system, though, isn't working. Mm-hmm. In the same way that I've been to a million schools where they're like good people who are teachers who like nobody's learning in the classroom. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things also that occurs to me now is the fact that the the polarization in this country and what is going on as a result of the political differences we have, you know, the far right and the left, and particularly the far right these days, uh, being enabled to really revert back to some of the practices and comments and feelings and hatred and prejudices that were just under the surface before the last election. And now they're enabled to bubble to the top. Yeah, and you know, we we think about the polarization is allowed to thrive in a place of extreme 
extremes. And part of our work is to not feed into the extremes, right? That like it is a I think it's a basic idea that the police shouldn't kill people. That seems pretty basic to me. It's like a basic idea that every kid should have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's like what does a what does a five year old have to do to like earn the right to eat? Like I don't they I think five year olds just should be a B, right? Like what does a person what does a kindergartner have to do to like earn or deserve a shelter. Like, we can actually guarantee these things. There's enough food. There's enough space. Like, we can do that. And I think that that's how we have to start thinking about it on our side. Like, no kid should be in a cage. That seems pretty basic to me. That's not like an extreme thing. Uh, so, so part of our work is not feeding into the extremism that sometimes the people that we oppose uh, employ. A lot of people out there would probably say, you know, but folks have got to earn it. You just can't give everything away. And you uh, make make some uh, reference in your book to the earn and deserve paradigm. What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, what's interesting is that it's only with people of color and, and poor people that people have that idea that when you think about white wealth in this country, it's a white people didn't build wealth just by all working hard. It's like we literally, the housing administration literally gave white people housing loans for like 1% interest, and we did it at a scale that we've never done since. You think about the GI Bill, that the way that we allow white people to access higher education was just so different. You think about even the highway administrations, that literally the highway administration was developed partly to pave over low-income neighborhoods and create the suburbs specifically for white people. So we know how to help people of color. We know how to, like, guarantee a set of outcomes. How? Because we did it for white people. And that, like, it's only with people of color that we lose that imagination. So it is, a you know, again, I don't know what a five-year-old does to deserve dinner. Like, that seems sort of wild to me. And we can guarantee those things as a society. You uh, had mentioned before you went on the air that you're getting tired. Uh, you've been very, very busy, certainly for the last four years, because you've been gone from one crisis uh, to another. What does that mean? I mean, uh, does it mean you're going to be bailing out to pulling back? What, where are you going from here? No, you know, it's like I, I've been to a lot of places strategizing with a lot of people, and I'm so thankful that I'm one of many people who's able to do this work. Uh, I spend a lot of time now trying to think about the systemic causes of these things. So we do a lot of data projects. We focus primarily on police violence, uh, mass incarceration, the racial wealth gap. And there's some stuff that just hasn't come out yet, but we're still doing a, a lot of work around that. And I think that it's just been like a long four years. You know, we were in the street for 400 days here, and then I went home to Baltimore, and that was like a whole other thing. I've been to... Uh, you know, Charleston and McKinney and Baton Rouge and, you know, so many places. Um, And I think, you know, soon I need to just like stay home for a month and just like reflect and think. I stay home for a while to write the book, uh, but now I'm on tour. So Mm. you you also uh, dipped your toes into uh, politics in Baltimore. Didn't work out so well. I think you came in sixth. Is that it? What does that say? I mean, does that mean that your message may not be resonating so well in, in Baltimore? No, you know, you have to remember that two things about that race. One is that I ran an 80 day campaign. Right. So like it was I literally was sitting down and I was like, who am I going to support for mayor? And then when I looked up, I was like, nobody even has a platform. Like, I don't even know how to support them for the, with issues because they don't have any. And I was like, the least I can do is uh, put my name in, in the race and, like, force a conversation and be a part of this process. And it was sort of an open process at that point. I think that people in Baltimore do care about these issues. And the second is that, you know, before Trump run, there were a lot of people mad at me for running. They were like, you're a sellout for wanting to be a part mm-hmm. of the system. How dare you participate in the system? Now, you know, that's not true. That like everybody's running for office now. So it's a sea change. I'm excited to see the change in Baltimore. 
And what office were you running for? It was Mayor, for Mayor, Mayor, yeah. Mayor of Baltimore. Uh, there are indications that you had a conversation with our Nancy Fowler recently and indicated you might want to get back into it. I, t- I definitely believe that we have to be as involved on the inside as we are on the outside, that we can't just be fighting people on the inside. We actually have to be those people. Most recently, I was a chief human capital in the city of Baltimore, the youngest chief in the history of the school system, and I believed in being inside because I already believed in equity and justice, so I could bring that to the work of the school system. You know, we had 200 schools, 80,000 kids, um, 11,000 staff to employ as many people as the city of Baltimore, so it was a, a big responsibility, and I, and I appreciated being on the inside for that work. But if you do run again, and if you should win, the, the sellout uh, charge is going to come again. No, so now it's like everybody's, you know, a lot of people are running for office. It's like even, you know, here and across the country, Bruce Franks ran, you know, a while ago. Is that now people, I think the activist community has understood that we have to be on the inside too. It can't just be an outside only strategy. And that is very different than it was when I ran uh, before Trump won. Right. I'm going to take a couple of quick calls. Our time is beginning to wind down, but we have Jason calling from O'Fallon, Missouri, wants to uh, chat with you. So let's get him in. Jason, you're on the air. Go ahead. Jason, just hung up. Let's go to Michael calling from Webster Groves. Michael, are you there? Yes. Go ahead, please. Uh, I was just, you know, I've actually been on the inside, too. I was a school board member for three years, uh, local public school district. But that being said, when you made the comment about, you know, North St. Louis is a good example of where the highways went in through North St. Louis. And my dad grew up in Baden. And the neighborhood was essentially white before the highway went in. And then there was issues with people moving out um, because of the way the highways just cut through the neighborhood. But to just make a blanket statement, as the guest said, of it being the issue, there were other factors that contributed to the downfall of some of these neighborhoods, not just the highways. Yeah, yeah. So this is a both and. So what's interesting is that if you look at the history of the highway administration, you actually see it, especially in the South, being used explicitly around race. So you look at Alabama, for instance, is that the White Citizens Council actually took over the highway administration in Alabama, in Montgomery, or in Alabama at the state level, but specifically focused on Montgomery with the highways and literally paved in front of the churches that organized around the Montgomery bus boycott. So when I say it, I'm saying it as a, as a general statement because it happened across the country. Uh, there are obviously some places where it wasn't used as explicitly, but there are a lot of places like in Alabama where literally the White Citizens Council organized to lead the highway administration to explicitly introduce a race-based strategy to create enclaves of whiteness in this country. Yeah. We have. Uh, a tw- I, I thought you were just referring to North St. Louis. I mean, I, when you were just talking in reference to St. Louis, where um, it is part of the whole part of the narrative is the highways. It really is, and I, 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 that's good that you're bringing people's attention to it. Cool. I think it's important. Thanks for the call. We have a tweet here uh, from David who writes, uh, DeRay seeks a socialist state. Society equals uh, government guaranteeing a living. We can seek racial equality through capitalism instead. Yeah, you know, I'm less interested in the labels and more interested in the outcomes. I believe that every kid should have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I don't care what you label that. I believe that if people need to be separated from society uh, for a wrong that they've committed, that that doesn't have to be putting people in cages. I'm open to whatever you call that. I believe the police don't have to kill people. And I also believe that uh, the response to conflict in community doesn't have to be with people who are armed, right? Like, So I'm less interested in how you talk about the label, and I'm more interested in the outcomes. How is your podcast? 
podcast going with our own Brittany Packnett. Brittany's amazing. <laughs> uh, so the podcast has done really well. You know, we won two Webbies in, in our first year. So we mm-hmm. won Best News and the People's Choice for Best News. Uh, it was the first uh, activist podcast that, that gained national prominence. And we were one of the most downloaded podcasts of all the podcasts uh, in the country in 2017 when we launched. So the podcast is doing well and it's good. Uh, it's good to do. And Brittany's amazing. Relative to that, we had uh, a communication here. Uh, let's see. It's uh, the ad content in the podcast. Uh, a recent one had him and Brittany hawking contact lenses. I'm sure others have uh, many sponsors, too. Something about it struck me as strange. I mean, I know activists have to make a living. Still, I wonder if he ever feels he's sold out because of this. No. So, you know, with the ads, we try to be really diligent to only support things that we believe in. Um and we also are trying to make sure that we are like raising money so we can continue to do the work, and and that's important to us. So the podcast is a is is strong. We love the podcast. It's Samuel Sinyangwe who helped uh, lead most of the policy work that we do. Brittany Pecknett, who you know really well because she was on the Ferguson Commission. Oh yeah. Um, and then uh, Clint Smith the Third, who is a friend of ours and an incredible academic who's finishing his degree at Harvard. Okay. Well, let's remind folks once again, uh, Deray McKesson, that uh, you're going to be appearing tonight at the uh, Union. Avenue Christian Church at 7 o'clock talking about your book. It's a fine read. It's a fine read. A nice job on that. I'll see you there. Doreen McKesson, thank you. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.